This podcast is brought to you by the National Dairy Council. I'm Jeremy Prober, and I'm joined today by Louise Crowley, dog lover, social media star, and of course, dairy farmer. Welcome, Louise. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. So a bit of background on Louise. Um, she farms a little over 240 acres with her dad in Limerick uh, by themselves uh, with a quad bike and several dogs. And they've got 174 cows. We're also in the presence of, um, I'd like to say we're in the presence of royalty because Louise was also queen of the land, which apparently, according to Louise, and we'll hear more about it later, is like the Rosa Trilly for farmers. And she is an expert on all things carving, milking, breeding, fencing. She'll tell us about that as well. A part-time accountant, she's a manager, she's an administrator, she's a maintenance person, and frankly, uh, I don't know how she fits it all into her life. Um, she's fiercely passionate about the land, about dairy farming, and about ensuring that it remains sustainable in the modern world. So, if I was to ask you then, of everything you do during the year, what's your favourite bit, and what's the bit that you, quite frankly, you wouldn't care if you never did it again? favorite bit I suppose it is seeing the calf being born rearing her and seeing her coming into the parlor for the first time I know it takes two years for this thing to all happen but it is nice I would remember all the cows that walk into the parlor at the moment the day they were born them as a calf growing into the the troublesome teenager heifer her calving and then coming into the parlor and training her so that is a nice, it's nice to see the progression and see how they get on. I suppose the worst bit, I suppose everyone's going to say when the animals have to leave and things like that. Unfortunately, when you have livestock, you have dead stock. It's a big downside to it, but that's it's a circle of life. But I suppose the worst part is probably the job I hate the most is fencing. It's the one thing that I have no choice. I have to do it but it's just one of these things that I will try and put on put off and off as long as I can and unfortunately it's the worst thing you can do if you have a broken fence <laughs> why why do you hate fencing I mean I've done some I, I don't I know I know I don't look like it but I have actually done fencing in my past and it was monotonous and it was backbreaking and I remember actually having hands that were cut to shreds by the time I'd finished. Is that it? Yeah, it, it, it's quite hard. It would be definitely quite hard on your hands. Uh, we would be very particular now in the farm with our fencing. We like everything straight and level. And unfortunately, a lot of the ground in our farm, there's rock. So oh, you no. can get one post down and then the next post won't go as far. And it's just irritating when it all doesn't go to plan. There's always some bit of a, a sidetrack on it. And when you're working with timber and you hope that there's going to be a good lifespan in it. But when you're when I'm at the stage now where we would have fencing done when I first started farming and I'm now replacing that now and you're going, oh, a couple more years and I have to do all of this again. Um and it's fine if that's the case, but it's when a cow decides to just go wild and run through and destroy a heap of fences that you go, there was no need for that. And now I have to spend two days fixing all of this and you could get an ocean tomorrow to do the same thing. It, it's it's just one of those things that I don't think I ever enjoy it. I It's lovely to see it when it's done, 
and it all looks nice and proper, but it's the time that it takes to get it to look like that. It, it's really lovely to hear you talking about the cows and the rearing of the cows, birthing, rearing, first time they come into the parlour, you being able to, It sounds very much as if the cows are, well, yeah, part of your family, really. Definitely, yeah. I would have several cows that have names. They all have characters. You know the cow that is going to be first into the parlour at the very start of the milking. Uh, you know the cow that halfway through, she likes to come in, you know, on the left-hand side. You get used to knowing their, their characteristics, really. Like, you know, you'll know if there's a cow that comes in last, you go, she's not normally there, you know, that's not like her. Something must be wrong, something's up. As calves, myself personally, from the moment they're born till they're about 12 weeks old, they're in a shed. I am checking them three, four times a day. I'm in the pens with them. I'm making sure everything, because the slightest thing can throw a calf off. So they are the be all and end all. They what I focus on. Once they get past that stage and they go outside, they're kind of self-sufficient. We're still watching them all the time. There is an awful lot invested in them. You get to know them very well. And I always used, growing up, I hated naming any of them because I always felt if you got that attached to them, they were the ones something was bound to go wrong with. And it was absolute heartbreak. I remember as a child, I was not even a child, 15, 16, and you'd name, oh, that calf, she's called Petal. And you come in the following morning and just something had gone wrong. And unfortunately, the calf had passed away. So, but uh, I'm at the stage now where you still need the pets too. And, you know, there's no point not being attached to them either because hopefully they're going to be with us for years. I noticed that you were best emerging farmer 2018. Uh, you were also, and, and I love this, you were also queen of the land 2018. Could you just talk me through that? So both of the titles came about through Macron of Pharma. So it's our young person's organisation. Everyone thinks it's for farmers. It's not. There's more non-farmers in it than there is us farmers at this stage. The Young Farmer of the Year competition is one that I would have looked at for years. I know several winners. and My neighbours and older generations would have all entered it. So something that I said I'd give it a go. I knew at the time I wasn't at the standard of winning the overall because I was so new in farming. I'm still finding my feet in it. But to come out as the best emerging young farmer was a huge achievement. Queen of the Land then was one that I won my, won my county round and was told that I would have been suitable for it. Did not know what I was entering. Um, it had been kind of explained to me as the Rose of Tralee for farmers. I went up to Tullamore for that weekend, didn't know anyone. I was only in Makra about a year myself, so I wouldn't have known anyone outside of my county. Went up and was explained, you need ball gowns and you're going to be judged and you have to do on-stage interviews no. and things. And that was fine. I was grand with the on-stage. And the next thing it was announced that I had won but at the time, I didn't realize how big it was. I spent the next year 
traveling to every mocker event I was invited to. I gave speeches at events. I traveled to Brussels out to the commission uh, with Young Farmers of Ireland. I traveled to Spain um, representing Ireland with four other European countries. I ended up on Spanish television explaining farming in Ireland and Queen of the Land. It did an awful lot for women in agriculture just to get it back in the public eye again. And I did get a lot of people getting on to me going, oh, I, I never thought I'd be good enough to go farming, but I see you're at it, so I'm going to give it a go. And a lot of my father's generation and older would have got on to me and gone, oh, I didn't think my daughter could go farming, but sure, if you can do it, then should I let them have a go at it. It changed an awful lot of opinions. This this is something that I wasn't necessarily going to, I wasn't necessarily going to ask, but you've raised it, women in farming. There are women, women presidents, women prime ministers, women whatever. So So why not? But it sounds as if there's still an imbalance in terms of women in dairy farming. How, 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 how do you view it? There is lots and lots of women in all sectors of farming. And there always was. The wives were always the ones milking the cows. The, the husbands were great at taking the milk to the creamery and collecting the milk check and doing the machinery work. But the cows and the calves, it was nearly always women that was involved in it. I suppose the distinction is that while there was always women involved, they never were the farmer or the farm owner or the boss. They were always kind of the labor. They never got to make the decisions. But that has started to change. It still is a huge issue. The percentage of female actual landowners or that have herd numbers themselves is still very small compared to our male counterparts. But it is changing because there was that whole tradition that the farm used to be given to the son and it was normally the eldest son and that was the way and there's a lot of people still do it that way but it's changing that people are now more willing to give it to the the child most capable male or female I think it should go to whoever is going to run it the, the best and I think the more women that have stepped up especially in the last three or four years and made it public that you know I've bought a farm or I'm doing this other women are being more vocal now and going, hold on a minute, why is my brother getting the farm when, you know, I know more about it or I'm better at it? So, I, I, again, I'm, I'm just I'm jumping from topic to topic, but this is one that interests me. For everybody, for everybody listening, Louise has a massive social media presence, both on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. And the Instagram is 20-something plus thousand followers. And the videos and the photos are just genuinely brilliant. And anybody who's not seen them should be searching uh, Louise up and having a look because it's great. What made you do this? What made you start this and, and build it to where you are today? So I started with Instagram. I would have had my own personal account for years. And it's definitely something that branched off from Queen of the Land. So after I won that, I'd been at a couple of things and posted pictures of events I'd been asked to and things like that. And then people started messaging me, asking me about the farm. How did I win? What type of farm was I doing? And as the more messages came in, I said, I might as well start going on my stories and answering these questions publicly because I said if there's 10 people asking, maybe there's 20 that are thinking 
but won't ask me. And it was kind of a progression from that then. I'd post one or two things and people then would go, oh, it's your parlor or show us this. And I, I'd show that. And it evolved into me basically showing the vast majority of my days, some days. But um, I think I, it took off then because I said if I was going to do it, it wasn't going to be very much edited. I was going to show it as it was. And I've gone on my stories. I spoke as of losing a calf during the spring. And I came on my stories and said, lads, I'm not, I'm taking a break for a couple of days. Unfortunately, one of my calves died. I am upset, you know, and you just show it as it is and people relate to it and you learn a lot more from it. And what I've taken from it is there's never a stupid question. Um, even if you your first read glance of you'll read a message and then I'll go, how do they not know that? Or what are they asking me that for? And then I have to think, they're probably not a farmer. They probably don't know. More than often, it's a genuine question. And it's interesting to, to get that knowledge across to people that wouldn't have probably known it beforehand. I mean, 20,000 followers plus, they can't all be farmers. So what has attracted people from outside the farming community to follow you, do you think? Yeah, there there's an awful lot of my followers that are definitely aren't farmers. And there's a, a lot that are farmers, but aren't dairy farmers. So they would still have a lot of questions as well. Uh, and I know myself, I follow a lot of other farmers on Instagram, uh, whether sheep and beef, and they put up stuff and I haven't a notion of what they be talking about sometimes, <laughs> you know. I know a lot about a dairy cow, but a sheep, I, I'd be lacking in the knowledge. I think people tune in and I probably get people share my content and things because I do try and explain things as clear as I can. And I do try and show it as it is. You know, if I'm not having a good day in the farm or if something's going wrong, I will say it. It's being real is going to keep people tuning in. and. I started TikTok last year during lockdown. I still haven't figured it out, but I've still managed to get like 12,000 followers on it. And a lot of it is the calves. People want, a lot of people have this idea that the calf gets ripped away from the cow and it's all horrendous. And, you know, from day one, they have a bad life. But I think people see my videos with the calves and they go, oh, you know, they're like pets, you know, my calves get treated as well as my dogs do. I put up a video for St. Patrick's Day and I was flipping a pancake in the pen with the calves and I ended up feeding one of the calves ate the pancake. Love the pancake. I put the video up and everyone was like, oh, we thought, you know, your animals were all mistreated. And I says, no, I says, sure, I'm feeding my calf pancakes. That's absolutely brilliant. On your social media biography, you talk about being a silage enthusiast. How can you be enthusiastic about silage? I cannot be anything but enthusiastic about silage. It is the highlight of my summer every year. Um, everyone kind of goes, oh, summer is the time you, you quieten down and you're after a busy spring and breeding season. Whereas I throw myself into a month of driving a tractor around the countryside. Um, I go from one busy season to the next. But I absolutely love it. Um, I suppose dad used to draw silage when I was small and he was coming to the end of his silage career as I was turning 16. 
And I just, the minute it was offered to me, do you want to pull a trailer? I was gone. There's a great bit of crack and community in it because you're going into several different farmers' yards. They're kind of farmers you might meet in the year until next year's silage. There's a crew of us that drive together. So there would be six or seven of us that work together. You see each other all day, every day. Um, even though it might be just passing on the road and, and I will salute, you know, going, I'll see you back in the yard in six hours time. But I just love machinery. Someone called it once that they said I had shiny metal disease. The minute I hear a harvester or more, I'm down the road to see who started cutting silage or who's cutting first. Or, I don't know where it really came from because most women wouldn't be into tractors or machinery, whereas I like to know. I A tractor could pass my yard now. I mightn't see it, but I'll know by the sound of it more than likely what tractor it was and who was it that passed. It's just an interest that it just takes over, really. Like. That's fantastic. Um, I want to sort of move the topic just slightly to one of the big things at the moment, which is this issue of climate change, sustainability. We've had the um, preliminary findings from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I think that's it. And it's all looking pretty grim and the world's going to hell in a handcart. And uh, we've also had the Climate Action Bill here in Ireland, and uh, that's all about cutting emissions, and obviously, agriculture is a bit of a, in, in a bit of the firing line. Uh, but we, we know there are things that are being done on farms to reduce emissions, to make it more sustainable. What are you doing on your farm? My idea is that I've been lucky enough to be given the opportunity to first and make a life out of it. So I want to keep good as I can for the next generation, hopefully. I measure my grass uh, every week. I know how much is on the farm so that I know if I need to spread fertilizer, if I don't, what fields are growing the most, which are performing the best. If they aren't performing, we make the decisions that, you know, you need to reseed when we do that, where we're planting clover. Clover is uh, reducing the amount of chemical nitrogen that we have to spread. You know, it's fixing it itself naturally. You know, these are things we have been doing for a decade or more before all this talk ramped up about climate change. Farmers were at this already because it's the, the most sustainable option for the farms. Anyway, we look after our hedgerows. You know, it's it's for the environment that we choose to do these things. Personally, I would love to cut my hedges every year. They look way nicer. <laughs> you know, it's like the person in the town that you know, trims their hedges and have them all lovely and square and nice looking. We'd love that too in a farm. Things look better that way, but that's not better for the environment. So we decide to do it every three years, let them grow naturally for the rest of the time, you know, because it just has a better impact. The two key things, the hedgerows and the pasture, which is about carbon carbon sequestration. So it's it's about taking other people taking society's emissions and actually drawing them into the soil so that's got to be a good thing i think we'd all mm-hmm. agree that the government's got to find a way of measuring this and how much carbon dioxide is taken by your land by the fact that you don't trim your hedges um measuring pasture is very important and the fact that cow numbers are at 
the level they were at in 1986. So, um, you know, it's not like there's a massive expansion over a period of decades. Farmers don't want cows that aren't going to be profitable or sustainable either. And we only carry the cows that the farms are capable of carrying. They're gone are the days of, you know, pushing the land to the absolute max because I want 10 more cows. There's no sense in it. The impact of those 10 extra cows could set back the farm for an awful lot longer. You know, you're not, it's not going to benefit anybody. And farmers are very aware of that. I think we should probably wrap up. It's been fascinating, I have to say. I, I, I will ask you one, one final question, which is what's the big challenge that faces you as a dairy farmer? I think the biggest challenge is the perception from the public. Within the dairy job ourselves, we know what we're doing. We know that we're doing it right and we are doing the best that we can. But unfortunately, I don't think people get the full effect of you know how much we do care about it that it isn't just a job for us it is our life and that we we are there to look after our animals because they look after us and they at the end of the day they they look after the public too because they provide all of the food for everyone else um i just think that some people in the public just have the wrong impression of us um, which is unfortunate because we're we're just there trying to provide for everyone. Hopefully, you talking to us for this podcast will go some way to showing people that there's an awful lot more to it, and the amount of effort that goes into it, um, the amount of care, the amount of attention, the amount of, if you'll forgive me, slight lunacy as well uh, that seems to go with it. Uh, or maybe that's just you. Who knows? Um, uh, but no, it's, but there's it's, definitely that element in it. You you want to love it to be at it. But no, it is genuinely fascinating. So it's been great, and thank you very much indeed, Louise, for letting us into your uh, into your world. Dairy Matters is produced by 4TC on behalf of the National Dairy Council. <laughs> <laughs>